It's CES this week, and our mobility team has all the latest auto technology, mobility, and policy updates from the in-person and virtual show floors. Since most of our eyes are on CES this week, our Shift Mobility podcast is taking over Daily Drive through Friday. Our hosts, Leslie Allen, mobility editor, and Pete Bigelow, senior mobility reporter, will be bringing you fresh interviews with a number of CES players all week. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Shift podcast. Just search Automotive News Shift wherever you get your podcasts. Now, over to Leslie and Pete. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hi, Pete. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Joining us today is Tom Jellicoe, Head of Autonomous Technologies at TTP, a UK-based design, engineering, and consulting firm. Uh, He's going to give us a rundown here on the sensor companies that are showing new products and, more importantly, perhaps, unveiling new business deals at CES this week. Uh, This is the the second in our week-long series of podcasts, Leslie. That's right. And this is a big day for CES when it comes to press coverage, because this is when all of those press conferences that those thousands of reporters gather for take place. We're not there physically this year, but there are some reporters in town, including one from Automotive News, and we're going to bring you the coverage as it happens right at autonews.com. Excuse that little commercial there. But please stay with us. We do have up-to-date coverage on the show. That's right, Leslie. And if uh, you know, we should also mention we've got daily newsletters that contain all the news from the show. Uh, we've got our, our series of podcasts this week, which continues tomorrow. Uh, so, so it is a busy CES week for those there in person and, uh, and for those of us remotely. This week, we have unveilings from Stellantis, from General Motors, Hyundai, all kinds of companies, uh, suppliers as well. So this is going to be a big week, even with all the changes that have taken place at CES. Just uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, Mercedes had a pretty big unveiling. Uh, They unveiled their Vision EQXX concept car, and this is a 620-mile range EV concept. Leslie, not to get too far ahead of myself here, but... uh... I know of one, one company that's going to be releasing a little bit of news here in the next few days that um, will, will have mileage that tops that. So uh, it's under embargo right now, but, uh, but stay tuned, I guess, for, for more to come here in, in what's a very busy week. That is intriguing. I can't wait to hear what that is. Well, for today, we have an intriguing guest as well. Uh, I think he's really got a lot of insight on the center space, on automated vehicles, uh, on the chip shortage that's obviously been plaguing the auto industry now for quite some time. Uh, I think that our listeners will really appreciate uh, hearing from Tom Jellicoe. So, uh, so without further ado, as we say, uh, let's go to today's guest, uh, Tom Jellicoe, the head of autonomous technologies at TTP. Tom, welcome to the Shift Podcast. It's great to have you today. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I want to kind of kick this off just uh, for those of us who are doing CES virtually this year, uh, yours truly included, I know you are actually on the ground in Las Vegas, and I'm 
I'm curious, what's the lay of the land there? What, what's it like? Uh, what's your first impression so far? Well, so I got in pretty late last night, um, kind of speaking to uh, some of the like Uber drivers and stuff. They're, um, I think they're a little bit concerned that, they're, um, that it's going to be a bit smaller than it was previously. I mean, I think that's kind of inevitable um, because of the pandemic. I mean, in terms of the companies that um, I'll be meeting with um, over the course of the, the conference, I think there's maybe two that have pulled out. Um, I think certainly for a lot of the sensor companies, most of them are going ahead. I think I'm aware of one that has um, cancelled its in-person um, presence and, and pretty much everyone else seems pretty pretty gung-ho about it. I think there'll still be the, the big hall of LiDAR companies that we normally have. Um, so, so for me, I think um, it's probably going to be slightly quieter, but, but a fairly standard CES. All right. I want to ask you about the uh, Hall of LiDAR companies in a moment. But first, for those who don't know who are listening, uh, what is TTP? What do you do? Sure. Uh, so TTP is a, a technology and product development consultancy. Um, we're based in Cambridge in the UK. The company's just over 30 years old. Um, and my role there is head of autonomous technology. So I lead a, a team of scientists and engineers who invent, design and develop new technologies for um, autonomous vehicles. So we do a lot of work on, on the sensor suite, um, both actually on the, the sensors themselves and working on the subsystems inside them, but we also help some of the tier ones and OEMs on, on integration of sensors and designing sensor systems for their vehicles. All right, well then I'm going to cut to the chase here and ask you about the sensors that, uh, that you test and develop and, and the hall of sensors that we're used to seeing at CES. It's obviously, uh, as you well know, uh, perhaps the biggest show in terms of seeing uh, what, what all these sensors can do, seeing uh, what seems like dozens of companies all, all in one place. So is there, is there an overriding theme that you sense going into CES this year? And, uh, and you know, what, do you, what is your overall thought on how uh, the, the sensor suite is developing right now? Sure. Um, I think if I had to say the theme for CES this year, I think it's all about design wins. It's all about companies announcing the, the deals that they're inking with, with serious um, car manufacturers. You know, the, I think uh, a few years ago, there was, what, 75 LiDAR companies and, um, you know, more than a dozen radar companies and all these other sensor companies. And there was still a bit of a question mark over whether you know, there was, there was ever going to be a serious volume for those in, in conventional passenger vehicles. I think that question's largely been answered now, um, and it's, it's less a matter of if and more when. So I think looking at some of the announcements coming into CES this year, it, tends to be, it seems to be a bit less about, the, there's still the sort of same raft of launching, you know, new and upgraded versions of sensors, but actually it seems the bigger news is, is on these design wins and on these big orders with, with tier ones and OEMs, which is really exciting. You know, we're talking about millions of sensors on vehicles as of 2025. So I think it's, it's quite likely that, you know, maybe the next car or the car after that, when people uh, renew, will have an expanded sensor suite to what we have now. You know, it won't just be the the normal radar um, and ultrasonic sensors, there's probably going to be, and cameras, of course, there, there's probably going to be LIDARs in there. Some might have some thermal cameras too. So, so that's really exciting. Is it, is it driver assist systems that are um, kind of driving this production volume right now, or is it fully autonomous as well? I think it's driver assist systems. Um, back in about 2018, 
I'd say that was kind of the, the peak of the hype around sensors for autonomous vehicles. And at that time, there was kind of this idea that, you know, ownership of, of cars was going to become a thing of the past. Everyone was just going to use effectively ride share. All of these cars would be autonomous and it would just be a very different um, ownership model um, and, and an entirely different way of getting around. I think that has, the idea of that has been pushed out maybe a decade or more. Um, and really, all of the volume and all of the value is in is in driver assist systems. I mean, when you look at the valuation of a of a successful sensor company, we're talking one to five billion dollars, um, and you're just never going to be worth that money selling tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sensors to robo taxi companies or to autonomous trucking companies. The volumes aren't there um, to justify that kind of valuation. So to keep those companies kind of expanding in terms of their, their value to the market, um, they really need to hit the high volume application, which means, which means passenger vehicles. So it has to be, it has to be ADAS really. And I think what, what we've seen is, uh, you know, particularly in LIDAR, all of the companies that have, have gone through um, SPAC mergers in the last couple of years to to generate a lot of capital. They're really all pointed quite firmly at, at driver assist systems in passenger vehicles um, because they recognise you know that that's where they need to go to get the volume. Tom, what is it that is separating the companies that are winning those production contracts that you're seeing uh, being announced now and and those who are still uh, kind of searching for that for that first customer or first or second customer. What's what's the difference between the haves and haves nots right now? Well, I think I think the the thing to understand about these sorts of contracts is you know the um, wh- when they announce the deal, um, that kind of what that means is that the the OEM or the tier one is going to buy that many sensors, provided you hit a whole bunch of development milestones over the next three or four years, depending on what the design cycle is. So, you know, um, it's uh, to use an analogy, you know, it means you've got a first date. It doesn't mean that the date's set for the wedding yet. Um, so uh, the, the companies that are, are getting those, those orders are the companies that can show a really coherent story, which will get them to serial production. Because, you know, it's, it's all well and good having really cool underlying technology. But the thing that actually makes a difference once it gets to a vehicle is, you know, can it be made for the price that an OEM wants to pay? And will it be robust and reliable enough to, to survive on a vehicle for several years? Um, so really, that's, you know, that's, that's what's uh, winning the orders is being able to show kind of a path to that serial production um, and largely having everything having your destiny in your own hands, you know, not having to rely on external factors to cost reduce something or to, to make something feasible. Um, so it, t- it tends to be the companies that have got, have managed to raise a lot of capital. There's kind of a chicken and egg thing there. You know, you can raise a lot more capital once you get the orders, but you need a lot of money to start with in order to get it. Um, so that's kind of, I think that's what's caused, that's what's driven a lot of the consolidation um, in the sensor companies. Um, and now there really are a few leaders that are emerging. So that's an interesting thought about the consolidation. And to your point, a few years ago, there were 70-something companies at CES. And it does feel like there's fewer now. Uh, how, much, how many fewer? And uh, is, it, is it mergers? Or is it companies that are uh, going out of business because they can't compete? What's, what is driving that consolidation a little bit? So, yeah, I think it's... For, a, for a, a company that wants to put a product on a vehicle, 
you need to at some point go through an automotive qualification process, which means you need 100 plus engineers really working hard on that for a, a serious amount of time. And that costs a lot of money. So in order to get to that point, you need to raise enough capital to make that to make that possible. Um, so, so that's kind of one of the challenges is, is um, as, as companies go through their sort of seed round and then their series A round, you know, we're talking here five, maybe tens of, of millions of dollars, then that's quite, you know, that's quite achievable with, with a whole bunch of different VCs that are, are willing to invest in those sorts of things. Once you're getting to the hundred million plus rounds, it really cuts down the pool of potential investors. So that's when, that's when companies are tending to struggle now. Um, and their option at that point is either to merge with another company or to go out of business. So what we're seeing is a few of those companies that you know, have, have fundamentally quite good technology, uh, quite well set up companies that unfortunately can't raise those, those really huge rounds to get them into the, ne- the, next, um, the next level. Um, they're, they're being either bought up by competitors or being kind of merged into either tier ones or you know a few of them have been um have been acquired by some of the um sort of level four level five robo taxi companies when they they brought that that sensor offering in-house um i think the two two of the more notable ones from the last couple of years um um there was a, a bay area based um FMCW startup called Hours Technology that was acquired by Aurora. That was the second FMCW company they've acquired. So they've really strengthened that in-house. So they're going to have their own very unique um, and probably quite high performance sensors. Um, and then the other big deal that, that went through maybe a few months ago was um, Sense Photonics were um, acquired by Alster. Um, they both make kind of similar uh, sensors, but Sense Photonics have quite a lot of IP and know-how on one particular part of those sensors. So I think they were they were um, Alster were able to bring that in, and I think um, in that case the the two companies merged together is probably greater than the sum of the parts. Gotcha, Tom. I hope you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but something that I feel like I've noted uh, in the last you know probably year two years is that on the lidar front, it seems like the lidar startups work more often than not directly with the OEMs. And on the radar side of things, it seems like the radar startups work more with the tier ones. And am I correct in that? And, and if so, why, why are those paths a little divergent depending on which sensor we're talking about? Yeah, I think, I think largely that, that's true. I mean, there are a few notable examples where LiDAR companies have sort of joined sort of hand in glove with a tier one. The most, I think the, the biggest one is probably AI and Continental. Um, they're very, very, very tightly integrated now, I think. Um, but yeah, I think in general, the, the LiDAR companies are pitching direct to the OEMs, whereas um, the radar companies are pitching sort of direct to the, the tier ones. I guess the, the big difference there is that radars have, have, been in, in vehicles for, for quite a long time. So the tier ones really have a lot of expertise. They have the manufacturing line set up. They've taken these things through automotive qualification many times before. Um, so in that case, it's, it's, you know, the tier ones really have a lot to offer there. Um, and they've, they've got a lot of relationship with the OEMs. They've, you know, they've built up a lot of trust there. So it makes perfect sense for them to really deal with the new technologies and integrate them on behalf of the OEMs. I think in the case of LiDAR, it's, it's very different to anything that's been in a, in a, on a car before. Um, you know, LiDAR, when you look at kind of the, the underlying um, architecture of a LiDAR sensor, it was really designed as kind of a scientific instrument that was either bolted on 
aircraft or satellites for, for very precise measurement. Um, so, you know, it's, it's built to very different quality standards and very different cost points um, to most uh, vehicle technologies. Um, and I think it's, it's, it means then it's, it's really different from anything that uh, a tier one has made before, you know. Um, a lot of the tier ones are very good at designing cameras for vehicles. Um, you know, in a camera you have a sensor and you have maybe a, a few lenses in a fixed assembly. It's really different to the, the sort of complexity that you have in a LiDAR and how many things you have to get right and all of the optical alignment and dealing with laser light sources rather than either LEDs or, um, or um, incandescent sources. It's all very, very different. So I think in that case, you know, the, the tier ones don't come with a whole bunch of, of knowledge and know-how in-house already. Um, so the, the, the startups are really the, the experts in that. I think one of the things that I've seen that's quite interesting on that front from Innovis recently is that they announced that they're going to be fulfilling the role of the tier one in some parts of the, the automotive qualification of their of their sensors. So um, for context, Innovis announced, were announced as a um, supplier of LiDAR to BMW uh, well, it must have been about three years ago now. Um, so they've been working on, a, on an automotive qualified sensor for a really long time. And I think they found, I mean, there, there's two ways you can interpret this. Either um, their relationship with their tier one's got quite rocky and they think they're going to have to do it themselves, or they realize that they've invested so much in, in some of the automotive qualification that they think they, they can now monetize that as part of their business model. But either way, it's really interesting to see a company, you know, of, of that age and size seriously talking about becoming an, an automotive tier one. So I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Innovis and, and be interested in that. I want to ask you about a, a LiDAR company that perhaps is, is a little lesser known or, or quieter. Uh, and it's an Israeli startup called Opsis Tech. Uh, they announced at CES, one of these uh, you know, big developments that you mentioned at the start of the show here, that through 2025, they're going to be uh, under producing 3 million uh, LiDAR units for for passenger vehicles. Uh, and I know that they use something called Vixel technology. So I'm hoping you can tell us, uh, you know, what's so interesting about Opsis Tech in particular and maybe Vixel technology in general. Yeah, sure. Uh, if it's okay, can I switch those two things around? Because I think yes, it will make it easier for context. So um, Vixel technology, um, it stands for Vertical Cavity Surface Emitting Laser. Um, the important bit there is vertical. Um, so normally when you make a laser, um, you have a big wafer of semiconductor material and then you dice it up into little chunks and then each of those chunks becomes a laser and they emit from the side. So you have to take each, each laser you want, you have to take this um, piece of semiconductor, then you have to package it and then that's a laser and it's kind of a component that you can then place on like a printed circuit board or something like that in your system. The difference with a Vixel... Um, so I think, yeah, the important thing there is that because it emits from the side, you have to kind of pick each one up individually and align them. And then there are some sort of optical challenges around that. Um, with a Vixel, um, you, you start with this wafer of optical semiconductor material, and then you can just pattern the lasers on top of it so that they um, emit out of the top of the, the semiconductor. So you don't need to dice them up. You don't need to make them individual. You don't need to pick and place them. So you can make, instead of having, you know, maybe one or two lasers that all have to be individually packaged, you can have literally thousands of lasers in a single chip. And then you can do some really clever electronics on the back of them so that you can control them all individually. So 
um, you kind of, if you imagine it's like going from like a laser pointer to a camera in terms of um, illumination. Um, so Opsys, I think, are one of the, the leading companies in, in commercializing this sort of technology for um, LiDAR, which is why they're so why they're so exciting. So I guess one of the challenges I mentioned earlier is all of the complexity in a LiDAR sensor makes it really hard to automotive qualify um, and make it robust and reliable enough for a vehicle. That's where, you know, that's where all of these companies are spending sort of hundreds of millions of dollars of, of R&D money. Um, the nice thing about using a Vixel um, technology and, and particularly the complementary uh, detector technology, which is called a SPAD, um, is that these... Um, these work a lot more like a camera um, in that the, they, you, don't, you can flood the scene with light and then measure it all at once in a sort of imaging mode um, on the detector. So you don't need any um, additional optics or optomechanical parts which direct uh, the light out into the environment around. Um, so it's, it's fully solid state. There are no moving parts in it. Um, I think any, any um, automotive quality engineer will tell you that reducing the number of moving parts is always a real winner. Um, anything that moves is, is challenging to get through into production. So, you know, what they've done is taken, um, taken the conventional LiDAR design and made it fully solid state, um, which, is, which is a massive uh, advantage when it comes to actually delivering um, units to, to car companies. You know, we talked about earlier showing this coherent you know this this coherent story of how they'll get to serial production it looks um it looks really compelling for optus tech because of the sort of elegance and simplicity of of the device so that's a great rundown of the uh of developments on the lidar front tom let's quickly pivot to to radar i know there's a lot of startups like spartan and under and Loonwave. Uh, what's the market for for radar right now and, and what's most intriguing among uh those startups and others? So, um, you know, ra radar has existed in vehicles for a long time. Um, pretty low resolution radar, you know, it's used for um, adaptive cruise control and, and those sorts of features. Um, these, all of these new radar companies are, um, are much, much higher resolution. So you can extract much more information about the scene around the vehicle and, and that allows you to put much cleverer features into the car. Um, I think what's kind of interesting about the radar companies is they tend to be split into two camps in terms of um, the sorts of technology they, uh, they're developing. Um, so in a, they either make the, the antenna, which is kind of the front end, which directs all, the, all of the um, radio waves out into the uh, environment or, you know, and collects them afterwards, or they work on kind of the back end. So they use a really standard antenna and have some, some cleverness on, on how they interpret the signals and extract the information from it. Um, so the two things are quite, are quite complementary. I mean, what's really nice about uh, putting these technologies into cars is there is an existing supply chain for them. You know, these, these um, devices are well understood and well known. Um, and, and there's kind of maybe eight to 10 tier ones that make most of the radars in the world. So there's kind of an obvious place for them to go for, for manufacturing expertise and, and for partnership. Um, so I think, I think it's really exciting. You know, there's a lot of information you can get from the technology and, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be seeing them in vehicles in pretty soon. That begs the question is, is radar getting so good that, that uh, you don't need LIDAR necessarily in a driver assist system? I think maybe that might be true along <laughs> in a, in maybe five, 10 years time. But I think, um, 
there's so much existing uh, work been done with LiDAR. So many of these machine learning algorithms have been trained extensively with LiDAR data. It's not just as, sim as simple as, you know, throwing away one of the sensors, because in a lot of cases, you kind of have to start you have to start back at square one then. So I think it's probably, there might be a sort of a gradual shift over time as, as you know, these maybe kind of, once we start getting towards level four, start relying less on the LIDAR and, you know, maybe fewer, fewer LIDARs, more radars. But I don't think um, LIDAR's going anywhere anytime soon just because the data from it's so rich. And, and so many of these, uh, so many of the um, AI algorithms lean so hard on the LIDAR data at the moment. We'll have more of Pete's conversation with Tom Jellico right after this word from our sponsor. With the rapid growth of 5G, cloud connectivity, electric vehicles, advanced safety systems, and autonomous driving, the auto industry is undergoing a dramatic transformation. It's transitioning from a manufacturing industry to a technology industry in real time. Drivers now expect access to the same digital experiences they enjoy at home or in the office while in their vehicles, creating real challenges for automakers as they work to keep pace with technology, their competitors, and what drivers will likely demand from their cars in three to five years from now. With more than 20 years of industry experience, Qualcomm Technologies has an extensive product portfolio that is helping accelerate this digital transformation of automotive. They recently introduced the Snapdragon Digital Chassis, an integrated set of technology solutions for developing connected and intelligent vehicles engineered to be safer, customizable, immersive, and continually upgradable. Their Snapdragon Digital Chassis includes cloud-connected platforms for telematics and connectivity, digital cockpit, driver assistance, and autonomy, but it's so much more than hardware. The Snapdragon Digital Chassis is scalable and modular, featuring open hardware and software architectures that allow automakers to reduce development cycles, shorten time to market, and offer differentiated digital experiences across a wide range of vehicle tiers. And this is important because as more vehicles tend toward electrification and the increasing use of digital technologies in their architectures, they are shaping the future of transportation a future with vehicles that are connected to the cloud nearly 100% of the time and continually sensing and processing information from their surroundings. With fast, reliable connectivity, robust processing power, and flexible hardware and software, the Snapdragon Digital Chassis is helping empower automakers to redefine the future of mobility and transportation. To learn more about the Snapdragon Digital Chassis, Visit Qualcomm.com slash automotive today. Now back to our conversation with Tom Jellico. Tom, I know that there's a lot of technology advances that we've talked about so far. I think one of the more intriguing things is how, how do these companies actually get their sensors to stay calibrated and stay clean when they're in real world environments? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting question. You know, as the number of sensors on vehicles is expanding and the number of vehicles with sensors is expanding, it, you know, becomes more important to solve some of the ancillary challenges around the sensor integration. And I think cleaning is a big part of that. You know, it doesn't matter how good the sensor is, 
um, really the value it delivers is the information it, it delivers to the sort of central control structure of the vehicle. Um, and, and that really depends on, on how well it can measure its environment. So when a, when a sensor gets dirty, that, that's a real challenge. Um, when you look at how sensors are cleaned currently, you know, it uses the same technologies which have been you know, on vehicles since about the 70s, um, which is essentially liquid jets and wipers. You know, works really well for the windshield, works really well for um, powerful headlights. Um, but the challenge is the, the number of sensors is proliferating all over the vehicle, right? There's, there's um, a lot of uh, liquid jets and, and wipers required, and that becomes quite challenging to integrate. Um, you know, lots and lots of wipers is, is quite a hard thing. There's lots of points of failure there. Um, it's not, a great, it's not uh, a great technology from an OEM's perspective to start proliferating on their vehicles. So um, we've been working for a number of years on, on alternatives to that. And um, the, the technology we're most excited about is, is ultrasonic cleaning. So instead of having a wiper, you use ultrasound waves to effectively blast the dirt and liquid from, um, from the sensor of a surface. And this is something you're working on with Texas Instruments, uh, I believe, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So Texas Instruments is a world leader in, in providing um, integrated circuits to drive kind of audio devices in general and also in vehicles. So, um, you know, they see this as a really exciting technology and they've been working for a number of years and built up quite a, uh, an IP portfolio for, um, for, for sensor cleaning. Um, TTP, so the company I work for, has been developing custom ultrasonic transducers for more than 30 years um, in a whole bunch of industrial um, and regulated environments. So it's, um, we're, we're working together with Texas Instruments to really accelerate the adoption of that, of that technology. And it's a really exciting partnership that we're announcing at the CES this year. Tom, I know that uh, we've been talking about sensors overall uh, for quite a bit. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the chip shortage that has been plaguing the auto industry for, for I guess, more than a year now as, as we're here at the outset of 2022. Uh, you have a distinct perspective on this. And, uh, you know, this is, seems to be the standard question, but we can kick, kick it off with, uh, with this. How, how, long, how much longer is this chip shortage going to last? <laughs> Oh, I wish I had a really definitive answer for that. I think it's definitely getting better now. Um, you know, the, there's not as many uh, plants being shuttered. Um, I think it's, it's caused a lot of pain for a lot of suppliers um, because ultimately, you know, people still need products um, and, and you, it's just not good enough to say, let's wait and see. So I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of companies have been having to work very, very hard to replace chips in their products. And I guess the real challenge there is if it's a processor, it's rewriting all the software, then making it all compatible with future updates. It's a lot of work, but I think um, a lot of that work's been done now and is really starting to ease a bit. I think also production volumes are starting to come back up. Uh, if, I, uh, if I had to put a timescale on it, I still think we've probably got another year, year and a half of disruption. Um, I just think that, you know, these, are, these semiconductor processes to make the chips just take a very long time to scale up. And, you know, they're very, very precise and, and there's a very long validation cycle on them. So it's, it's going to take a while, but I think things are definitely, definitely improving. Tom, I'm curious, what, uh, what is your career path and, and how did you get to be the, the automation guy at uh, TTP? <laughs> yes, that's a very interesting question. I often ask myself that question. Um, yeah, so um, originally I, uh, 
I studied uh, materials and then optoelectronics um, when I was at university. So I did a PhD in optoelectronics at the University of Cambridge. Um, then I was working on um, on solar energy, actually. I worked on, on new processes in solar cells to try and get more energy from the sun and, and produce produce better technologies there. Um, and then after that, I, I moved into product management at a technology company and then ended up at, at TTP. Um, I was initially in the, the sensors business unit um, and I was really fascinated by um, some of the underlying kind of physics in the, the sensors for autonomous vehicles. Um, so we started growing our, our client base there um, and we've really expanded our team. Um, and now, and now that's, that's the team I, I have the pleasure of leading at TTP. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's been really fun. Um, we get to play around with science and engineering every day. And, and there's, the, the nice thing about autonomous vehicles is there are, there are no shortage of, of challenges and problems to be solved. So uh, it keeps us nice and busy. Well, maybe this one is a little further out, but, but drawing on your earlier expertise in solar cells, I, I have seen a, uh, a startup or two, uh, one even that, that's at CES that are working on solar powered vehicles. Um, do you think that has any hope of a, of a future that, that helps kind of wean our dependence on, on gasoline? I mean, possibly. Uh, you know, coming from the UK, we don't see a lot of the sun. So um, I'd be a bit concerned about having a, a solar powered vehicle there. But I'm sure there are certain parts of the world where, where that's really valuable. Um, yeah, I mean, whether um, solar is the right, uh, is the right, um, renewable energy source for something as energy intensive as as transportation is another question you know um, I think there's a lot of development in hydrogen that looks really compelling um, we're doing some work on that ourselves at TTP with my colleagues um, I think there's um, an interesting question about what you do about the um, electrical grid once everyone moves to an EV you know there's a lot of energy that just needs to be shifted around countries so that people can use it at, at the point where they need it. Um, whether that could be done on the uh, current um, electrical grid infrastructure is a, is a really interesting question. Um, I, when, I, when I first started at TTP, I did, um, we, we, we've done various work for the energy industry and I was on a project about, about um, analyzing grids and, and how they work. And I don't know if this fact is still true, um, but at the time I was told that the US is tied with Uganda for the number of uh, electrical blackouts per person uh, in the population. And the big challenge that the US has compared to Europe is it's never been bombed or destroyed. So your infrastructure has kind of grown up piecemeal over time as the country's expanded. Whereas in, in the UK, you know, it all got flattened in the, uh, in the early 40s. So we got to start again at that point. Um, so uh, there's still a big question about how you know, get all this energy around, around the grid, how you get stuff to where, where it's needed, whether you have really distributed energy generation or whether you have you know, central hubs. I think that's gonna be a really, that's going to be a really crucial question to unpick over, over the coming years. For sure. Uh, and I never thought we were going to get to a point where we were finding these silver linings and having a, a world war on your own soil, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, hey, Tom, if, if our listeners want to contact you, reach out in any way, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Um, they can go to our website. If you go to ttp.com, um, send an inquiry and it will find its way to me. Always happy to chat about technology um, and vehicles. Great. Well, this is a, uh, a, you know, your first appearance on the Shift podcast, and we're grateful to have you. Uh, really intriguing discussion, and I look forward to, to having you back on again sometime. Thanks very much, Pete. Great to talk.
Thanks again to Tom for joining us. Leslie, I got a lot of insight out of that uh, conversation. A lot of things to follow up on and keep track of through through 2022. Uh, you know, we start to see that crystal ball picture uh, coming, becoming a little clearer these days. That's terrific, Pete. Good interview. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. We hope you will continue to join us this week for our special podcast during CES. So we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>